The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 48 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Just a quick note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsors' support that this show can continue to go on and provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. 41-year-old Annie Ripple of Batavia, New York, was found dead in Little Tonawanda Creek in 1997. Her death was ruled a drowning, but she was found with duct tape wrapped around her neck, leading the police to believe that foul play may have been involved. The case has never been officially solved, and since then, Annie's family has been searching for answers. Batavia, New York is a small town located about 35 miles southwest of Rochester, Annie Ripple was born here on January 26, 1956, to Harry and Leah Ripple. She was one of eight children. Annie was described as a free spirit who was extremely talented. She could paint or draw anything. She loved Janis Joplin and had painted a large picture of her above her bedroom wall. She was also a mother to three children and lived in a house on East Main Street in Batavia. In April 1997, Annie ran into her younger sister, Janet, in Batavia, and chatted with her for a bit. Janet said Annie appeared fine, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But two weeks later, on April 23, 1997, a passerby spotted a body in Little Tonawanda Creek, near the Creek Road Bridge in Alexander, a few miles southwest of Batavia. The body was later identified as Annie Ripple. Annie's body was face down in about two inches of water, and she was naked below the waist, wearing only a sweater and socks. The rest of her clothes were strewn on the creek bank. Duct tape was wrapped around her neck. The only set of footprints found at the scene belonged to Annie, leading police to believe she walked into the water herself. 
Annie had no visible wounds on her body, and there was no evidence of sexual assault or consensual sex in the hours before her death. The cause of death was ruled to be drowning. Annie didn't have a driver's license or a vehicle, so it's likely that someone else may have driven her to the creek. Investigators believe someone Annie knew was with her when she died, and they may have panicked and left the scene. Two men who were fishing on the morning of April 23rd came forward and told police that they didn't see a body in the creek at the time they were fishing there, but it's unclear what time the men were there. Investigators pieced together Annie's movements before she was found dead. They learned that Annie was seen near her East Main Street apartment at 11 p.m. on April 22nd. They later learned that Annie was also seen at Chuck's Tavern on Ellicott Avenue around midnight. A woman said in the comment on the Remembering Annie Facebook page that she was at Chuck's that night and Annie asked her for a quarter to make a phone call. She said Annie did make the call, but she didn't know anything else, and she didn't know who Annie called. Investigators received and followed up on many tips. One tip led them to Rochester, where someone claimed to have seen Annie at 3 a.m. that morning. Another tip came in that she had been at a house party near Little Tonawanda Creek. It was a popular hangout spot in 1997 and located about seven miles from Annie's home in Batavia. Annie had battled drugs and alcohol throughout her life, and on the night of her death, she had used both. In fact, earlier that day, she had gone to Rochester to buy drugs. But interestingly enough, there was not a significant amount of alcohol or drugs found in Annie's system. Annie had a lot of friends and knew several people, so police are certain someone knows something. But 22 years later, Annie's case is still unsolved. But there was DNA evidence collected at the crime scene in 1997, and it was submitted to CODIS, but there were no matches. There have been no arrests, nor have there been any suspects named publicly. Annie's family is hoping new DNA technology will help solve this case. That new technology is called DNA sequencing, and it's the same method used to locate Joseph James D'Angelo, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer, in 2018. The process is simple. Police submit an unknown DNA profile sample to a company like GEDmatch, which takes samples from genealogy sites such as Ancestry.com to find genetic links. It basically involves building a family tree backwards that will lead investigators to a suspect. This method can be a long and difficult process. While Annie's family is waiting to see what can be done using DNA collected from the crime scene, they're bringing awareness to Annie's case and trying to reignite the investigation. The Remembering Annie Facebook page is very active and contains theories and information on Annie and her death. But Annie's siblings continue to search for answers in their sister's death. If you have any information regarding Annie Ripple's case, please call the Genesee County Sheriff's Office at 585-345-3000. Annie's sister Janet sat down to discuss the case with me and the search for truth in Annie's death. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Janet, and thanks for coming on to discuss your sister Annie's case with us. Hi, thanks for having me. You've had a a pretty big family with lots of siblings. How many of them were were you growing up? There was uh, nine kids altogether. It was a blended family of his, hers, and ours. (laughs) So it was uh, was like uh, everybody for themselves, it sounds like. Yeah, pretty much. And... Uh, how big an age gap was there between you and Annie? 
Uh, there was, I believe it was 13, 13 years, 13 or no, 14, 14 years between, uh, Annie and myself. I was the youngest out of all the kids. And she was the second oldest. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Now, did you look up to, to your older sister? Like a lot of younger sisters do? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I did look up to her and, uh, my other sisters being younger, she was the, you know, the carefully one and he did whatever she wanted to do. So for me as a kid that I just thought that was awesome. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about some of your memories of of growing up with her. You know, I, being the youngest, you know, a, a lot of the memories that I have with her were already when she was out of the house. Um, she moved out at a pretty young age, and she but she was working, you know, right out of high school, uh, 17, 18 years old, and she had her own place. So I was fairly young, but, you know, I just always remember her sense of humor. She, when she would come visit all of us, she would always, every, anything and everything would come out of her mouth. She was just, her sense of humor was, was something that I remember about Annie, and like I said, her carefree spirit. And and did she seem, you know, somewhat independent getting started right out of high school and moving out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even even before then, she had, um, you know, just up and up and moved out. And yeah, she just like I said, she did whatever she wanted to do. And when she put her mind to it, that's what she did. And what kind of person was Annie? Can you tell us a little bit about her personally? She uh, had a heart of gold. She would. She cared for everybody, um, all of her friends, you know, she cared deeply. She didn't have a vicious or, you know, bad bone in her body that just wasn't her spirit. Um, she was just like a big ray of light. And once you were, you know, both adults, she's already out of the mm-hmm. house. You yeah. uh, you grew up eventually and, and, and became an adult. Did your relationship change at all between the two of you? It it did change between uh, her and I, and, and even her and my brothers and sisters. As I got older, um, you know, she we knew she was, you know, doing drugs and and drinking and stuff like that. So I mean, it was just her crowd wasn't our crowd. So I mean, we would still talk to her and see her and hey, love ya, you know. But it was a different relationship after that. Sure. And was it kind of hard to watch her go down that road and struggle with that kind oh, of stuff? Oh, very, 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 because we knew that that's, you know, she had tried to get clean quite a few times and succeeded for a while, but it's hard when you can't, you know, move from the area you're from. Unfortunately, people find you and it's you end up going right back in, you know. So she was sort of stuck in that environment with the, the people yeah. that she was surrounded with. Yeah. And how, how she had kids of her own, correct? Did she have them? Yeah, she young? did. Okay. How old was she when she had her kids? Oh, geez. You know, I'm not even, I would say she had to have been, she was 40, 41. She passed. She had to have been 26, 27 with her first, maybe. Um, She had three kids, Sammy, Bobby, and then her youngest daughter was Victoria, who was, I believe, eight years old when she passed. And was she married when, when she had the kids or was she single? Uh, she was. She was single. She was married when she first had the kids, yeah. But by when she passed, she had been divorced. 
And do you think that the, you know, her issues with uh, dependency and stuff contributed towards her, uh, separation or was that something that happened i'm sure no i'm sure it probably had a lot to do with it um her husband loved her dearly but you can only you know help someone so much before you just can't help them anymore if they can't help themselves so of course that must have been very difficult on her children too sure yeah absolutely and and how hard was it on on the rest of your family just seeing that struggle that she had with your parents and everything (laughs) It was extremely hard, um, especially on my father. It was his firstborn daughter. Um, you know, it hurt him a lot more than I think he ever let us know. Um, we were always there for her, but at the same time, you kept enough distance because of what we knew she was going through and who she was hanging around with. And I guess, you know, as a, as a parent, he probably wanted to somehow rescue her from that but as, as we know with with those kind of things with drug addiction and stuff like that it's hard to do that right right exactly the, the last time you saw your sister was in april of 1997 uh and as i understand it you randomly bumped into her on the street is that correct yeah i had been going to um i was on my way to work actually and i had stopped into the store next to where she lived and he'd seat her on the porch and she was like hey janet i said hey Ann, how you doing i'm ready to work you know she's like oh i'm doing good i mean it was a short hey how's it going you know see you later take care type of thing did she seem normal did she seem like everything was okay there was no yeah. sign of any trouble yeah. or anything nope nope not at all and how long after that did you get the call from your your father uh, that she had been found dead. Jeez, I want to say it probably wasn't maybe two weeks. And can you tell us a little about getting that news from your father? How difficult that was. Um, it was it was very difficult. Um, he had called and told me, you know, they found your sister, and all I I could think of was, you know, maybe they found her, uh, you know, had overdosed or something like that. But then when he told me the manner in which they found her and it was just, um, it wasn't anything we were expecting. And, you know, the questions rose of, well, how did she get there? I mean, who was she with? Because there was no vehicles around when they found her. And she was quite a, a distance from where she lived and she didn't have a car. Yeah. Is that correct? No, she didn't have a car. She didn't drive. She didn't like to drive. She didn't have a license. Um, so, and it was probably, I think it was like six or seven miles from where she lived. So she didn't walk out there. So there were some, some troubling questions right from the very beginning. Yeah, right from the start. And how did your, your family as a whole, and, and specifically your parents, handle it? Because I, I can imagine that you don't, as a parent, you don't want to bury your children. You you expect to pass away first. So how did right, you right. handle that aftermath of getting that news? Um, It was extremely difficult. Um, my dad, I mean, my mom was hurt too. We were all kind of shocked. Like I said, we didn't expect, we didn't expect what happened to her to happen. Um, my dad took it very hard. Um, then it came to, you know, my gosh, what, what's going to happen with the kids? Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a pretty trying time. 
And did, as, as far as you know, or your family knew, did she have any enemies or anybody that she had run-ins with that might have wanted to hurt her? Um, not that we knew of. Um, since then we've, you know, I guess, you know, there had been some, some people in her life that were, you know, kind of abusers as far as, you know, old boyfriends or whatever, but nothing that would want to, nobody that she had been around in a few months. So it wasn't like all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's who did it. We, we had no clue. At the time she was killed, was she living with anyone? Did she have a roommate or uh, was she living with anyone in a relationship? Um, no. Well, there was, no, she wasn't. There was, there was a friend of hers that was, she was living with her. Um, that was kind of, she was helping out with a place to stay. Oh, girl. But other than that, no, she wasn't living with anybody. What did the police say uh, to your family? Did they question you to see if they could get any kind of information about who might have done this? They did. They questioned us as far as, you know, do you know any of her acquaintances, who she hangs out with? Um, and, and honestly, we didn't. You know, we knew that Annie, we didn't know any of the people she hung out with. Obviously, you know, they were drug dealers and stuff like that. We had no clue. All we knew was that that was her lifestyle. So I think that kind of made it harder for the police and that, and to that effect, you know what I mean? It was that sort of frustrating, not being able to feel like you could help. Extremely, extremely frustrating. Um, yeah, it was, and even now it's frustrating because all these years later, we still don't know who she was really hanging out with. And looking back now, do you think that her alcohol or drug abuse contributed in some way to her death? Do you think it's tied to that uh, activity? I think um, I think that was probably the reason that she was where she was. Um, you know, maybe she was buying drugs or somebody was, whether they were doing drugs. Um, because, you know, normally she would stay in Batavia. Or she she would travel to Rochester because she had some friends there that she would, you know, buy drugs from or whatever. There was no reason for her to be at a creek in the middle of Alexander. It's just not someplace she would have been. At the time that it happened, did her case get a lot of attention in your area from the news or... Um... Yes, it did. It got quite a bit of news for probably probably a month. Um, and then it just kind of dropped off. Um, other cases had come up and they, those kind of took over, you know, other high profile cases. I can't think of who they were offhand, but there was two of them that happened that kind of, you know, happened around the same time. Do you ever feel that her case didn't get as much attention as it, as it could have maybe because of her lifestyle? Absolutely. I I do believe that. Um, I believe that, you know, due to the fact that she was who she was, um, it was kind of, I mean, I not to be mean about it, but yeah, for sure, I don't think it was put in a priority for the sheriff's department at the time. So you think possibly the police even uh, wouldn't put as much effort in as they might someone who wasn't in that kind of life? Right, right, yes. Were there any issues that you or your family had with, with the investigation itself? Did you come across anything that troubled you as far as that? 
No, I mean, not really. We weren't really told a lot to begin with. Um, you know, the, the one detective, he's since retired. I mean, he did, he would email my parents from time to time, you know, Hey, we're still working on it. We're working on leads. We're working on leads. Shouldn't be much longer, blah, blah, blah. You know, and that was probably every year for the first 15 years. And how about since then, how about now? Do you still have contact with the police? Or are they still actively investigating? It is an open, active investigation. Um, I believe that the Facebook page that we started has put a real big boost on the um, investigation. Also, the, the lead detective had retired, so um, there's a new, new guy, a uh, deputy, that is handling the case now. And I've talked to him. He's, I believe that he's really trying his best to figure out what's going on. He kind of took, took the files and started from scratch instead of just picking up where somebody left off. So, yeah, I think it's getting a lot better traction now than it was then. So he's maybe sort of taking a fresh look from it, like he's starting it from the Yes, beginning. yes, yep. And I guess if there's any good news in the case, it's that there is DNA evidence, and hopefully that will lead to the identity identity of the person that did this. But right, when you see these old cases being solved on TV or in the news, does that give you hope that any case may one day be solved? It does. I just keep thinking I can't wait until you know her headlines are are in the paper that we we found who she was with. And you mentioned earlier your Facebook page uh, about Annie's case. It's called yeah. Remembering Annie. Does that page yeah. generate a lot of leads or interest in Annie's case? Do you get do you hear from a lot of people on there? Yeah, we've heard from a lot of people on there. Um, we've gotten a lot of information that we've shared with uh, the Genesee County Sheriff's Department. Um, so it's been a big help. And I think what's good in these cases, people back then that maybe didn't want to talk about it, maybe enough time has passed. And if they're afraid of sharing secrets or sharing information back then, maybe now they feel comfortable. So I think it's right. very important to keep keep the case out there in the spotlight and and keep attention on it so people know that it's still unsolved. Yeah. You know, social media, people tend to be a little bit more open on social media than in person. So. And it seems like you've been making an effort too to to make sure that the case doesn't fade away too. What what kind of things have you been doing to to get the word out there? Well, we've had on our Facebook page. I do have the help of um, a local writer that has been uh, putting profiles that he's worked up just from what we've been told. Um, taking a look at at what the newspapers have given us information on to kind of help give people an idea of what possibly could have happened in hopes that maybe, you know, descriptions or something will jog somebody's memory. Maybe somebody said, Oh, you know, I never thought about that. Maybe I should tell them this or that. So um, I've done a few interviews on the news, stuff so like that. It sounds like it's an ongoing battle to try and keep the case in the spotlight. It is. It is. What's what's the toughest part of, about going through this for you and your family after two decades? Um, I think the toughest part is, you know, with with the help of recreating what possibly could have happened, 
it's kind of given us a little bit better image of maybe uh, her feelings at the time, or you kind of think back and, and um, you know, gosh, she must have been scared or she must have, you know, how horrible to leave somebody out in a creek like this. I mean, you think about it when it first happened, but when, when you start to put into play, okay, this is what I think could have happened and this is possibly where I'm going with, I guess it's just, you know, you think about what she was feeling at the time. My sister was, you know, my sister was a fighter. She, she did not, um, you know, go laying down. That's for sure. But you have all these images of what might've happened and how things played out going through your mind all these years later. Right. Right. And are your, your parents still alive? Uh, my mother is. My father passed away last year. Um, that was kind of why um, we decided to do the Facebook page. Uh, it was a very hard subject for him. So, um, you know, once he had passed, it was like, okay, now we can bring this out again back into the spotlight without hurting him uh, and, and get it going again. So he he passed without ever knowing what happened to her, but it was too hard for him to relive all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the the sad part about these kinds of cases because when someone's murdered, you know they're the the victim obviously, but then there's victims in the family that suffer for for years later. And for years and years, yeah. And that's what's what's horrible in these kind of cases. Um, and and do you have any plans to try and do anything else coming up to to uh, keep the focus on this case? Are there any other ideas that you're coming up with? Um, I'm trying to work on some things now. Um, possibly um, doing doing some stuff. I can't really say yet, though. But I have been try- in contact with some a couple of TV shows and stuff like that too see if I can't get this on a more national level. And has has this case been talked about on any kind of national uh, television programs today? Um, not on television. Uh, Dateline has done an interview with me on their Thursday, I believe it was a Thursday uh, internet series. Um, I mean, I've done interviews with local news stations, stuff like that, but I'd like to get a bigger, a lot bigger audience. And have you had any help from anybody right in your community as far as trying to figure out what kind of things you can do to to try and uh, find the person that did this or to figure out the the timeline of how things happen? Yes, yes. Um, like I said, I have some help with somebody that helps me run the Facebook page. His name is Rob Thompson. He's actually a local writer from Attica. Um, he has been helping as far as uh, maybe with sharing like a possible profile, um, recreating what could have happened. Um, it's it's some really interesting reading. If you go on our Facebook page, Remembering Annie, and start from the beginning, you're going to get a lot of information on there on, um, on the whole case in general. And, and, all these years later, obviously her children are grown up. How are they doing? How yeah. do they handle this entire situation? Um, they're doing good, actually. Um, one of them had, had passed, actually, I think it was two years before Annie had passed. But 
uh, her son and her daughter, they're both doing very well for themselves. You know, obviously they want a resolution to this also, but um, they're doing very well. Yeah, that's 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 a really sad thing when you see cases where a parent's taken away from their children and they have to grow up their whole lives with, without their parent with them. Right, right. You know, and unfortunately we've seen that it could turn out bad, but luckily in their case, you know, they've, they've done good for themselves. So um, I'm very proud of both of them for, for doing that. Well, and, and hopefully for their sake and, and your sake and everyone in your families that the case is one day solved. Uh, you know, we did mention there is some DNA possibly that they can work with. So uh, we see these cases getting solved all the time. Hopefully Annie's case will be one of them. Absolutely. That's, that's what we're hoping on. One thing we want to point out is that if anybody out there listening has information about the case, they should contact, what is it, the Genesee County Sheriff's Office? Yes. Yep, the Genesee County Sheriff's Office. Uh, their phone number is 585-345-3000, um, and they can contact them. They can always private message the Remembering Annie Facebook page, um, you know, if they don't want to talk to the Sheriff's Department or our Twitter um, which is Annie's time two with the number two, uh, any of those ways to get a hold of us, you know, we'll make sure whatever information we get gets to the proper people. Well, we'll be sure to put all of that in the notes for the show. So anyone listening can find that and, and go to the right places to, to share their information. Awesome. Well, Jana, I, I appreciate you joining me to talk about Annie's case. I know it's been uh, a long 20 plus years now, and, and I hope that the answers that you've been waiting for are coming. Thank you very much. I hope so as well. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you enjoy The Murder of My Family, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a new true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called True Crime Fix. Be sure to give it a listen. I'd also like to share with you a short preview of Season 2 of one of my other podcasts that I co-host, alongside John Lorden and Gray Hughes, Three Men in a Mystery. Season 2 launches November 11, 2019. If you haven't already subscribed to and listened to Three Men in a Mystery, I hope you will. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Sarah Marsland? I bet you will have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Coletta Ram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.
Welcome back, boys. Nice to be working with you again. Um, and welcome back, all of you listeners out there. We've got a brand new case we're looking into. We're calling this season Silenced, the death of Elisa Gomez. We're calling it Silenced because Elisa was an artist working on her final college project at Minneapolis College of Art and Design. What she was working on was painting a self-portrait, but in this self-portrait, her mouth is covered in duct tape and the word silenced is written on the duct tape. There have been several high-profile cases where police have initially thought that it might be a suicide. Some of these cases turn out to be actually staged homicides. There's just a large sense of injustice when the puzzle pieces point to more than the conclusion reached by the official investigators. Tuesday, October 11th, 2016, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. First responders show up on a bright, sunny fall morning to a cute cottage home with a wooden picket fence. But as they get closer, they see that the gate for the fence has been shattered to pieces, and the wood frame along the top of the gate is broken in two. They head up the walkway, and an outdoor lighting fixture has somehow been pulled out of the wall and is laying on the ground. A cell phone would later be found in the bushes two houses down. There was clearly some sort of big dispute outside. However, several of those details would not wind up in the responding officers' reports. The night before, a disturbance call was phoned in by neighbors stating that they heard a man and a woman yelling at each other outside. By the time police drove by, the disturbance had ended. They drove by without investigating further. They didn't know they'd be back the following morning to conduct a death investigation. A narrow staircase leads down to the basement, which had been converted to a bedroom. A bathroom door is to the right, and hanging from a beam is a purple scarf. Laying face down below the scarf is the body of 47-year-old Elisa Ann Gomez. She's wearing a sweater over a shirt, but only panties. Her body is draped over a short step stool, usually used for her dogs to get up on her bed. The dogs are laying next to Elisa and present the first challenge to the first responders. Whoa, okay. Um, we have some big dogs here. Huh? No, back upstairs, guys. Ma'am, can you... There's a big dog back there. I'm not sure you want to go. A fire department captain carefully approaches and works his way around the dogs to Elisa's head. The staircase is jammed with responding personnel in a holding pattern. It takes only a few moments for them to realize it's too late. Yeah, we got rigor. Right over here. Yep. Yep, she's gone. Okay. And you can cancel the EMS. Cancel ambulance. It seems that years of experience just don't make these moments any easier. It literally takes only a few seconds before the questions start. So, what's the story? Did they I find think, her hanging here? Yeah, we haven't gotten that. We okay. just got here just so you guys, so we're going to... He's going upstairs now. Did you guys get the remarks? Apparently they yeah. found her and cut her down. But the first responders have yet to learn one of the most difficult aspects to understand about Elisa's death. Would a new bride do this to herself on her wedding day? 
Less than 24 hours prior, Elisa married a man named Bradley Alexander. He lived in the house for a little over a month. They also had a roommate named Sharon Vestal. The three of them were out at a bar celebrating Elisa's marriage to Brad just a few hours before she reportedly ended her own life. Elisa's family has been in contact with me for several months. Her mother, Judy Hunt, is searching for the truth. She's provided us with a lot of information, including recordings, pictures, and reports released to the family by the Minneapolis Police Department Records Office. She has told us this case is closed and considered a suicide by the police department. However, on Elisa's death certificate, the medical examiner, Lauren Wilson Jackson, has listed the manner of death as could not be determined. In conversations with the family, Emmy Jackson has been clear that he cannot rule out the possibility of a homicide. And my sister-in-law actually was on the landline with me. I was talking to her and Elisa was on the cell phone. So my sister-in-law heard the whole conversation. And I said, Elisa, why? And she said, well, Brad talked me into it. Um, He was afraid I was going to get away from him. She said, so don't tell anybody. And I said, well, I've got candy on the other line. And and she said, Aunt Candy, don't tell anybody because we're going to still have that big wedding in April. And um, and she said it was his idea. He wanted me to change my name immediately. And but I was just I had a sick feeling in my stomach about it. And but she sounded so happy, you know. So what do you do? <laughs> It's your daughter, you know. So then I got the call the next day. We're going to be calling on the best experts we can find to evaluate this information and help bring us all to a better understanding of just what happened here. Yeah, and and we will analyze the physical evidence and try to determine if it was even possible for Elisa to have done this to herself in that basement. We're going to learn about Elisa while honoring her memory. This is a woman who was a mother, artist, animal lover, and beloved family member. We will also look into the history of Bradley Alexander to see if his past includes anything that may change our perspective on the official status of this case. All of that coming up on this season of Three Men and a Mystery.